Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Sometimes paperwork is just paper. A contractor submitted three bids for a contract to remove medical waste at facilities operated by Health and Human Services. Only the middle of the three bids included an attachment. When it won the contract on the third bid, the company figured the terms in the attachment on the second bid applied. The government disagreed. Here with what happened, Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. And this sounds like something totally arcane, but the contractor really went in with some strange expectations, sounds like. Yeah, Tom, you know, during the course of bidding or quoting government contracts, often there are documents that are exchanged both by the contractor and by the government. And a question that comes up and is sometimes important is which of those documents ultimately become part of the binding contract between the government and the contractor. I think the way you described it is correct, that this was a civilian board of contract appeals case involving a contract for disposing of pharmaceutical waste. And the contractor included, as you said, in their second quote, this ESA. ESA stands for? Environmental Services Agreement. Got it. Okay. The reason they thought the Environmental Services Agreement would be part of the contract was because of discussions they had during the quoting process with the government. And they included an email in the record before the civilian board indicating that they were attaching the ESA and providing it to the contract specialist. And the email mentioned you know, that they were providing it as discussed. So this was something that came up in the quoting process, and there was at least an informal understanding that it would be part of the purchase order that resulted from the quote. All right. And what was in that attachment that became so important here? So the requirement specifically in the ESA that became important was that the government was to provide a waste profile describing the waste before the contractor would come and pick it up and dispose of the waste. And ultimately, in performance, after the purchase order was awarded, Clean Harbors, the contractor here, received a request to pick up and dispose of waste from the government. And the contractor responded, requesting a waste profile, which the government didn't provide. So the company expected the government to abide by that ESA it had attached. And the government thought it was just an attachment from an earlier bid that didn't have anything to do with the task order. Well, whether or not the government thought it was part of the contract, they later argued that it wasn't. There may have been an informal understanding between the contractor and the contract specialist that this requirement would apply through the ESA, but that doesn't necessarily make it part of the contract. Right. So the contractor's expectation the government was going to do such and such per the ESA, the government didn't consider the ESA part of the contract, and so it came to kind of a standstill, the whole thing. Right. So the contractor asked for the waste profile. There was no requirement for a waste profile to be provided except in the CSA that the government would argue wasn't part of the contract. And after the government didn't provide the waste profile, contractor didn't pick up the waste. Ultimately, the contract was terminated for cause. In the government's view, then, the contractor, again, Clean Harbors Environmental Services, simply wasn't performing in the government's view. That's right. And Clean Harbors said that it didn't have an obligation to pick up the waste until the government provided the waste profile. All right. They got to this point where the termination happened. And then what did Clean Harbors Environmental Services do? So following the termination, Clean Harbors appealed to the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals, challenging the termination for cause. 
And the thrust of their argument, at least in this initial decision, was that the ESA, again, was part of the contract and the government was required to provide a waste profile before the contractor was required to pick up the waste. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. And yeah, this gets really crucial then, because if that ESA requiring the waste profiles was not in the actual contract, this is something apparently the company overlooked, because what you sign is the contract, not the attachments in the bid. And so if those terms weren't incorporated, this is something it sounds like the contractor missed. Yes, the contractor apparently didn't catch that the purchase order didn't specifically reference the ESA. The purchase order incorporated the third quote, which didn't detach the environmental services agreement. All right. And so what did the contract appeals board say here? So the board first looked at the purchase order itself. There was a section of the purchase order, section D, that listed documents that were part of the contract. And those included the statement of work and Clean Harbor's third and final quote. But again, the quote itself didn't attach or reference the ESA, and at least that third quote that was actually incorporated, and the ESA wasn't otherwise listed in Section D or otherwise referenced in the contract, and it wasn't attached to the purchase order either. Clean Harbors pointed to language in the RFQ that allowed the contractors to submit equal items with supporting descriptive literature, and the contractor argued that it was doing that with the ESA, that it was providing an equal services offering with this waste profile requirement. But the board said that language in the RFQ was calling for the contractor to provide descriptive literature to support that the items met the requirements of the RFQ, not to alter the terms and conditions. Interesting. So they might as well have attached a Girl Scout cookie order for all the effect it had on the final contract or the final order. That That's right. Uh, <laughs> Just to put it, it, it bluntly. It didn't really matter what else was uh, attached to their quotation because it wasn't specifically referenced in the final purchase order. And there's actually quite a high standard for incorporating documents by reference into a government contract. And the civilian board quoted from the Federal Circuit case law on this point. The language used in a contract to incorporate extrinsic material by reference must explicitly or at least precisely identify the written material being incorporated and must clearly communicate that the purpose of the reference is to incorporate the reference material into the contract rather than merely to acknowledge that the reference material is relevant to the contract, such as background law or negotiating history. And there you have it. So it's got to be explicit and carry over into what is eventually signed by the two parties. That's right. If there's no mention of it in the contract, unsurprisingly, it it doesn't automatically become part of the contract just because it was part of the discussions during the quoting or bidding process. Right. And the uh, Civilian Board of Contract Appeals also looked at the content of that attachment and found a bunch of other things that the government could not have complied with even if it wanted to. That's right. So the ESA didn't only include this waste profile requirement, but it also specified application of Massachusetts governing law, and it provided for different payment terms than what the purchase order provided. So inconsistent and illegal terms in that attachment also were factors for the board saying, hey, this couldn't have been part of the contract in any case. Sounds like the contractor attached a piece of boilerplate that nobody proofread to update for federal versus Massachusetts or wherever else they do business. I'm just guessing. I think that's right. And, you know, in the commercial marketplace, documentation is exchanged all the time, and the battle of the forms is a common process. But there's a 
particularly high standard in government contracts for incorporating documentation by reference to make it part of the contract. And this becomes important in some cases for the contractor, but in other cases for the government. For example, the government sometimes wants to rely on particular material included in a contractor's proposal. And so the government also has to be explicit about incorporating a proposal and which parts of the proposal become part of the contract. Yeah, you can see why there is a high bar. Someone could attach the King James Bible or something and then you know say, well, we stone you if you don't perform this contract or something. And so that's the reason that there's a lot of things people could slip in. And so you have to be careful what you reference. Yes, there's a large volume of information that is exchanged during the proposal process. So it's important to be explicit about what's actually the contract and what's just other information. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? 
Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.